name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, we give thanks to you that all of heaven declares your righteousness, and all the nations of the earth see your glory in the proclamation of your saving name. Keep us steadfast in the true faith, and grant us to rejoice continually in the free gift of your everlasting salvation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The prayer that I began a Bible class with is from the congregation at prayer. It is the psalm prayer on Psalm 97. There is a lot of singing uh, in the psalms in the 90s, as well as elsewhere. Uh, and Psalm 97 is no exception to that. It is a prayer of rejoicing in the reign of Christ in the hearts of people of all nations by the gift of faith in the Holy Spirit. And that leads us into, now we're uh, week 11 and 12 in the school year and in praying the catechism, which means we move now from the second article to the third article, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The verse for the week is John 15, 26, which is part of Jesus' catechesis on Maundy Thursday. So if you can't see the board, you can look at your congregation at prayer. If you can't see that, Dr. Brett Rohde will see you for eye examinations. So let's speak these words together. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. What I'd like to emphasize in this verse is in Jesus' catechesis on the Holy Spirit, he calls him the Spirit of truth. So truth implies words. He will testify. To give testimony implies words. This is how the Holy Spirit works. Through the word of truth, he testifies of Jesus. So there is no working of the Holy Spirit apart from his word when it comes to bringing people to faith in Christ. That's echoed in the small catechism. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So you can never separate word of God, the preaching of it, from the Holy Spirit. Through the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the Holy Spirit works faith when and where he pleases in those who hear the gospel. So this is a strong emphasis. And Jesus' catechesis on the Holy Spirit, this is John 15. It begins in chapter 13. It continues in 14, in 15, and 16. And it culminates with his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And throughout that section, he is constantly linking the word of God with the Spirit, who is also called here the helper, other uh, translations of parakletos in the Greek, counselor, comforter, helper, all adjectives describing the work of the Spirit. He is sent by Jesus and from the Father. So if I ask you, though, does Jesus send the Spirit or does the Father send the Spirit? The answer is yes. Okay? So the wonderful um, economy in the Godhead where there is love given and received among the Father and the Son and which proceeds out to us by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love, to call us in to the love of Christ. So let's speak this one more time. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Now, one final thing. Holy Spirit. Holy, we put in front of a lot of other things. 
like holy gospel. Give me another one. Holy Holy communion, good. Holy baptism, good. Holy supper, holy communion, holy baptism, holy absolution. What I want you to see is those, the holy word of God, the holy Bible, holy gospel, holy baptism, holy absolution, holy supper. It's not an accident that we call those things holy. These are the gifts through which the Holy Spirit takes Jesus and lays him on our hearts, okay? So a lot of times, I remember growing up in the charismatic movement. How many of you grew up in the charismatic movement? Alex, where are you? Yeah, okay. You know, that you Lutherans have no theology of the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely patently false. The theology of the Holy Spirit is the theology of the word and of the sacraments. Through these as through means, the Holy Spirit works faith when and where he pleases in those who hear the gospel. So with that in mind, uh, what is the third article of the creed? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, Believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. Let us pray. O Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, to give life and salvation to the world, and who, together with the Father and the Son, we worship and glorify as the only true God, receive our thanks and praise for proclaiming Christ to us through the preaching of the gospel and the gifts of the holy sacraments. Faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and love for God and our enemies are all your creations and gifts to us, through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Preserve the Holy Christian Church among us through the faithful preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments of Christ. Bless the communion of saints that every baptized Christian, sharing in Christ's love through his forgiveness, might abide in Christ and bear witness to his love in all that we do and say. Give us firm hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, so that we might faithfully endure persecution for Jesus' sake and suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from him who gave his life for us. Hear us, O Holy Spirit, for you live and reign with the Father and the Son, one God, now and forever. Amen. So in that prayer on the third article, you'll notice the phrases from the third article of the Apostles' Creed are uh, used in the prayer. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. We move on to the story of Joseph. I'm going to be doing a little bit of uh, catching up today. <clears throat> but chapter 42, remember the brothers had been to Egypt once, and they met with the prince who was his brother, when they met with the prince, what was the first gesture that they did? They bowed down to him. They didn't realize it was Joseph, their brother, but they bowed down to him according to the word of the Lord that had been revealed to him in his dream. And Joseph treats them roughly, remember? He accused them of being spies, 
people who pretend to be something that they are not. Remember how they reported to him that they'd been sent there by their father, and he specifically inquired whether their father was alive and whether they had another brother. They confessed the truth that they did, but they were getting creeped out because of the questions of this guy and his rough treatment. He insisted that they were spies, liars, pretending to be something that they were not. I made the point two weeks ago, and again last week, those who say that Joseph was taking vengeance on his brothers are incorrect. Joseph is their pastor here. He treats them roughly in the same way that the law treats us roughly in calling us to repentance. And what this rough treatment accomplishes is it brings the sin that they had buried to the light of day. Now, they've run out of food. They've got to go back to Egypt. But if they're going to go back to Egypt, according to the man, the prince of Egypt, who has to come with them? Benjamin, their youngest brother, and also the full brother of Joseph. And Joseph is testing the veracity of their words. Are they telling the truth? <clears throat> Chapter 42 Verse 6, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed before him. That was what we had heard uh, last week. Remember then, at toward the end of chapter 42, this is all in the spirit of reviewing. He put them in prison for three days. Verse 18, then Joseph said to them, the third day, you see the lovely resurrection theme there? It's already in the Old Testament. Joseph said to them, the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, and they're referring to Joseph. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Now Joseph was listening to that. He knew the language, even though he was speaking to them in uh, Egyptian and through an interpreter. All right. So Jacob does not want to let them go, but finally when they're out of food, they're there's no other choice. So we move into chapter 43. And Jacob sends them off. And he says to them in verse 12, uh, excuse me, verse 11, their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds, Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Remember, when they opened up their sacks at the encampment, all the money they had brought the first time to buy grain was there. Ah! And may take your brother also, that's Benjamin, and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. Now, what's the lovely thing in what Jacob said to them by way of his blessing prayer as he bids them go? You mean Joseph? No, what did Jacob... Israel. Yes, what did Jacob... What lovely thing is spoken of in his... This is a prayer of blessing that he sends them away with. May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Will that happen? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. And Jacob, who had been through a lot in his life, uh, some would call it karma, 
No. Because <laughs> a lot of the shenanigans that he engaged in in his young life came back upon him you know, later on with Uncle Laban and being double-crossed and so forth. All right, um, I'll forego the jokes since I want to keep going here. But he invokes the Lord's blessing on the basis of the Lord's promise to him. When the patriarchs do this, you know, may God have mercy on you. Remember, they're appealing to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the promise of salvation. Okay. All right, so that's what happens. And then... Uh, let us take it on to uh, verse 19. When they drew near to, to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, O oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. True. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack. True. Our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. True. And we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. True. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. True. Now, I'm, obviously the words true are not in there, but I'm wanting to emphasize to you that these guys who have been living a lie for so long, due to the circumstances of how they're being treated, they are shall we say, learning to tell the truth. But he said, now this is the steward, obviously instructed by Joseph, the prince, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Now, that word, since it is coming from Joseph, is more than just a word of greeting. What does it mean? What is Joseph extending to them? And this is necessary in order for there to be true repentance. Forgiveness. Yes, forgiveness. So Joseph's steward was instructed by him specifically to make this greeting. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. How many times have we heard that language throughout the scriptures and in the New Testament? Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. It is always a word of absolution. Now, part of the point of drawing this to your attention is that Christ's forgiveness is there for us in the gospel on account of what Jesus has done and according to the promise of the gospel, quite apart from whether we confess, repent, even realize that we need it. That doesn't mean that faith and repentance is not important. It is because we receive that gift by faith alone. But there is forgiveness from, for us from God even before we have asked of it. That's what Christ has won for us. Philip. And also, the steward is acting in the stead and by the command. Isn't that great? In the stead and by the command of my Lord Joseph. Peace be with you. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Now this is, you could say, now that's a lie. But wait, to whom do all things really belong? God. And not just any old God, but your God and the God of your father. So he's identifying the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? It's great. Nothing that you have is really Yours, it belongs to the Lord. All things belong to him. So there is no lie here whatsoever. All right, then he brought Simeon out to them. Remember, where had Simeon been? He'd been in prison this whole time. I wonder what he was thinking. Cheapers, creepers. That's a technical biblical phrase, you know. Where are my brothers? So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet and gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, 
They brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. The very thing that they swore to God they would not do, they keep doing. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. <laughs> when you fight against God, you lose. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. Now, Joseph is restraining the emotions within him as his heart yearns for his brother. And he said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Now, weeping like this is of a special kind, isn't it? I mean, is it the weeping of hopeless, devastating sorrow? Not at all. Is there some sadness within those tears, perhaps of lost years and so forth? Perhaps. But more than anything else, within those tears are also tears of joy at the prospect of reconciliation. Like if you had a son or a daughter or a relative or a friend who had wandered from the faith but had returned, you would shed tears. They would be tears of, of joy. Then he washed his face. Now this is a spooky thing for his brothers. Not that he washed his face, but what comes next. <laughs> he rest restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him, that is Joseph, a place by himself, because he's the prince, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. He got essentially three tables here, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews. Well, Joseph himself was a Hebrew, so he has his own table, as well as being the prince. I mean, he looks like an Egyptian. He knows he's not an Egyptian. The Egyptians are not eating with the uh, with the Hebrews at the same table. That's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, now this is what's spooky, the firstborn according to his birthright, Benjamin, and the young, or Reuben, and then the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Now do you understand what has happened here? Joseph has given specific instructions. Who should sit where? And he has them sequenced out at the table. So you've got Reuben all the way down by age to the youngest, to Benjamin. Now these are grown men. I mean, even when some people see my brother who's four years older than I am, they think I'm older than he. Is it not true? Those of you, some of you have seen my brother. Huh? I don't know who well enough to say Rick. that. Rick. Well, no, sometimes. I mean, just, I'm just trying to think. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I always, I always, people say I look old. Thank you, way. Pastor Gelbach. Appreciate it. <laughs> but the point is, when you're dealing with these old men and they got beards and so forth, I mean, how would you know for sure the birthright order? But he knows the not if you didn't know them. So here they're put in order. And this they were astonished at one another. This is a little creepy. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. What is this parable? 
parallel to earlier on in the Joseph narrative. He receives five times more than his brothers. Joseph was shown favoritism by his father Jacob. And what was their response to that favor? Resentment, envy, jealousy, anger, hatred. What will their response be now? This is great. Whatever you want. Five times more to Benjamin. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Okay? They do not have the same reaction now as they had then. Because in both instances, whether it was the coat of many colors that Jacob gave to Joseph, or five times the helping now given to Benjamin, all such things are gifts of God's grace. Okay? So when those receive, I mean, every gift that we have is a gift of God's grace. So we shouldn't resent, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't resent Jody because he has more hair than I have. <laughs> Just happens to be on his face. <laughs> Everything that we are and have is a gift of God's grace. So they receive it, and there's, there's merrymaking. Notice, like kind of the divine service, when they first meet the steward here, peace be with you, do not be afraid. God had your money, all is well. And then they enter in, and at table, they feast and they make merry. You know, you've got like the service of the word and the service of the supper. Okay, verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. A lot of falling down on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know? Oh, I, I didn't. I, I needed to um, give you the background. Sorry, I jumped ahead. What happens? They're dismissed. They get the money put back in their sacks. And then Joseph instructs them to put the cup. And here Joseph pretends to be a good Egyptian, a good pagan Egyptian. The cup is used for divination. What is divination? It's the consulting of the dead, a means by which, through the spirits of the underworld, you can predict the future, and so forth. So he pretends to be the good Egyptian prince. He instructs them to put his cup in the sack of Benjamin. Okay? Now, again, why is he doing this? Well, listen to what unfolds. Now, verse 14 of chapter 44. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? Now notice his questions. It is as if he is saying, We have no... Excuse? There's no way we can justify ourselves or clear ourselves. Now, they were offered the opportunity to let Benjamin be put to death. But they wouldn't do it. They went with him, all of them, back to the prince of Egypt. This is part of the function of why Joseph treats them this way. Will they intercede for their brother Benjamin now in a way that they had not done years earlier with Joseph. You follow? And who is it that speaks up? This is not a coincidence. Judah. Remember what Judah had offered his father Jacob. If anything happened to Benjamin, he offered his own life. Judah is the fourth-born son of Joseph. He is also the head of the tribe of Judah, from which another seed would 
offer himself for ransom. Who's that? Jesus. Okay. How shall we clear ourselves? Now, look at what he says next. In the middle of verse 16, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. So what Judah is confessing here is that what is happening to them, they justly, what? Deserve because of the sin that they had committed against their brother, against their father, and against God. A sin that had been covered for lo these many years. We are, my Lord, slaves, both we and he also whom the cup was found. Now here they sound a little bit like someone in one of Jesus' parables. We are your slaves, your servant, the prodigal son. The prodigal son, recognizing his sin, resolves to go back to his father, confess his sin. I've sinned against heaven and before you. True. I'm not worthy to be called your son. True. Make me one of your hired servants to get back into your good graces. Now, the first part of the prodigal son's confession was correct. The second part, make me a slave to earn my way back into your favor, was not. The brothers follow that same pattern here. Because after all, how could there be, how could there possibly be forgiveness for someone as awful and despicable as these brothers and what they had done to their father and to Joseph? How could there possibly be forgiveness? They think there cannot be, precisely. But he said, now he's going to give them an opportunity to save themselves, so to speak. Far be it from me that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go in peace to your father. Sounds good. We're off the hook. Then Judah came near to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh, which is sort of a way of saying you are even like God. My Lord asked his servant, saying, now follow the progression that Judah gives here and his testimony to the truth. My Lord asked his servants, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left, and his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die, die of heartbreak. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is not, is, if our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Is all this accurate? Yeah. Yep. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, Joseph, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. Now Joseph hears exactly the story that the brothers had used to cover up the sin that they had committed against him. So he is, in a sense, hearing the honest confession of what transpired. You follow? Again, the rough treatment was to bring the sin to the light of day without qualification, without self-justification, the unvarnished, unadulterated truth. And I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. 
Now, therefore, now listen to what Reuben says, and I want to ask you, what is it that is motivating him? But listen first. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety, you know, Judah had pledged himself in exchange for Benjamin, for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. That is, that is complete and total honesty on the part of Reuben here, A. B, uh, I'm part of Judah, and B, he is willing to take the blame and the responsibility for what he has done. Sort of reminds us of the psalm, uh, you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You know, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. But he is willing to forfeit his own life so that Benjamin might live. So now to the question that I raised before reading this section. What's motivating Judah here? Love. Love for his father. And the kind of love that is born of what God has made us to be as baptized children. Okay? Um, according to our flesh, we have no such love. But I submit to you, like the prodigal son in that parable of Jesus, he went out and squandered his father's love in prodigal living. And Luke records Jesus' words when he came to himself. And in that expression, is the realization that he had squandered what he was as his father's son. He had squandered that relationship. That was the, the prodigal son. And he said, I will go back to my, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? So he, he is called back to his status as his father's son. So here with Judah, he is confessing the unvarnished truth and part of that emanates from the fact that he had been not only his father's son, but, the, but a son of the promise. You know, in your seed, Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. He had been circumcised. He had known the Lord's word. He had known the gospel. But he and his brothers had wandered from it. My point here is that the love that he has for his father that's on display here, that he doesn't want to bring such harm upon his father, is anchored in the faith that he is being called back to by the way in which Joseph is treating him and these circumstances. Do you follow that? He still needs absolution. Any comments or questions at this point? Then we get to the climax here in chapter 45. Susan. Verse 31. They take the blame for killing. We would kill our father, not you would kill our father for taking Correct, the blame. that's right. We, it would be our we, fault, would be our, fault our own fault, our own most grievous fault. That's right. No passing the buck. That's right. Not you would be blamed for this, but we would. And we would take it. Nathaniel. What is the difference between uh, their deception and Joseph's deception? I'm repeating this for the sake of the recording. Is it that uh, deception in itself is not bad? What did you say after that? That deception per se is not, is not bad. It's more nuanced than that. Deception per se is not bad. It's more nuanced than that if it serves a good purpose or something like that. 
I'd like you to think of it less in terms of deception in its raw sense and more in terms of what Joseph is doing in terms of the law, the function of the law. What do I mean by that? The law threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Is God deceiving us? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the sins of the fathers upon their children to the third and fourth generation. Catechism says God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. But do we get that punishment? No. Is he lying? Is he deceiving? No. Not really. Okay? So I think if we look at it more in terms of law and gospel, it's a better way to look at it. Because according to the law, they deserve all of this. And, and Joseph is not deceiving them, is he, when he says, you are spies. You know, pretending to be something you're not. Is that not true? Yeah. Kathy. I don't know if that helps, Mr. Hahn. But. I guess I'm not seeing it as much as deception on Joseph's part because I think his brothers truly believe that they killed him or sold him. And he is just like uh, Jesus, was he deceptive to the people that he went on the road about Emmaus with? No. He, he what things? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? You do not know the things that happened there in these days? Right. What things? Right. Yeah, I think John said catechesis is a method there. Mr. Hahn, he wants to follow. He's also kind of, they know they were lying, they Yeah, King David, when he was confronted with his sin, he has told a story, a parable that was analogous to what he had done that draws the truth out. Right. And so, again, I just repeat the theme before. Joseph's rough treatment of his brothers is not vengeance. I'm going to get back at them for what they did to me. But he is acting in the stead of the Lord as a prophet, as a minister, calling them to repentance. And it's an art. Uh, parents will do this, uh, kind of what we might call deception. When we, when children, when our children are insisting upon certain things and certain views and certain things that they want to do when they're growing up and they're little, sometimes we allow them, yes, right, and we give in to what they are asking so that they experience the folly of their ways, Alec. Okay? Sometimes that needs to happen. Okay, Philip. According to wow. the word of the Lord. Right. Yep. Well, Peter. Different topic. I just wondered if you have any thoughts about it's uh, Reuben that originally kind of stands up for Joseph, right? Yeah. And now we've got Judah yep. um, standing up for, uh, for Benjamin. Is there, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's that? interesting um, uh, just to say this. The firstborn, Reuben, quote, stood up. But what did he offer? His own sons. His own sons, which is kind of a pagan thing to do. All right? Judah offers himself, which is a fundamentally Christian thing to do. Also, in the Old Testament, the, the last person you want to be is a firstborn. <laughs> Sorry, Claire, but you're not in the... Uh... I mean, the firstborn of Adam and Eve turned out to be a murderer. 
second born, further on down the list. You know, according to the birthright, the firstborn has certain, like Esau, has certain blessings associated with the status of being firstborn. He has the rights of a firstborn. But part of that is to show that that doesn't, like Esau doesn't get to exercise the birthright, nor does he receive the father's blessing. Why? Because such things are given by grace and not by works, including rank or merit. Like, I'm entitled to this because of who I am and so forth. But I, I do think that in the case of Reuben there with that incident, he offers his own sons, but not himself, as Judah did. All right, chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. This is parallel to his excusing himself to weep when he first meets Benjamin. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. I think this too is also like a sweet parallel to pastoral care. Uh, he dismisses the Egyptian servants and the absolution and the reconciliation takes place between he and his brothers in the Lord's forgiveness. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Wanting, you know, I mean, if they, if they murdered him and lived this lie for so long, is it really the truth, you know? Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now look at this radical thing that he says next, which can only be proclaimed, confessed, spoken by someone who believes in the gospel. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now this salvation, is it merely temporal? No, it is not. It is not merely temporal. It is also a spiritual salvation. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now is that deception, Mr. Hahn? You see, that's the reality of the gospel. The gospel calls things that are not as though they were, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, including when he says to me, to you, you are righteous. As I said this morning in the sermon, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. Joseph radically interprets what happened to him. Not in terms of the law, not in terms of what they had done, not in terms of the judgment of God against the sinner, but entirely on the basis of the gospel, of God's grace, and of God's mercy. And they were now ready to receive it. See, that love for them existed in Joseph's heart, and more importantly, in God's heart, before these guys ever came to Egypt in the first place. The trouble was, in impenitence and unbelief, they were rejecting it. But through the circumstance of Joseph's ministry to them, they're brought to repentance, which is the faith that receives it. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hasten and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, that in itself is an unbelievable gift because in the whole realm of Egypt, what is Goshen? The most fertile land. It's in the Nile Delta. It's richly watered rich, with rich soil. You shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have, because you did enough good works to have earned your way back into the favor of God and to save yourself. Uh, that's not what it says. There I will provide for you lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And the glory of Joseph in Egypt is not merely that he is prince of a foreign nation. But the glory of Joseph in Egypt is the glory of what? Christ, the glory of God's love, the glory of God's grace. And you shall hasten and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. O Lord, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So finally, the absolution of the Lord and of Joseph. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes, I do. It opened their heart and it opened their mouth to confess the faith. All right, that's, the, that's the climax. Now there's more that uh, comes and we shall... Uh, we shall continue next week. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.